Good morning, New Haven. This is Love Babs, Love Talk, but this is not Babs. It's not Babs or else Ivy. He usually hosts every morning, gets us wake, woken up and ready for the day. She's having a great week off, as I'm told by Babs. At a writing workshop, loving nature, she got the big snow. And I'm Pope filling in for the inimitable Babs. And we're going to speak this morning with Roland Lamar, state representative from New Haven, 96th Assembly District, since 2010. He's been there a while. And he's now worked out to be chair of the House, the House chair of the Transportation Committee. He's going to tell us what's up this week at the Capitol. We're trying to make safer streets in New Haven. Good morning, Roland, and thanks so much for coming in. Of course. Good morning. Good to see you. Hey, you know, there's breaking news this morning in New Haven. There was a homeless encampment on the, uh, and we're going to talk about traffic, I promise, and transportation. There was a lot of traffic on the boulevard today because they were swarming in the city to shut down a homeless tent encampment, which is yeah. you know, a tough issue. They said about public safety hazards there. The people living there said they had nowhere else to go or didn't want to go to shelters. And most people left. Um, a few holdouts there without incident, and then one protester who wouldn't leave, so he was arrested. But there's something really interesting happened this morning, Roland. Do you remember Occupy New Haven in 2012? I do, yes. Do you remember that was a big encampment in the green and nobody would leave for months and it was really dangerous with the flammable stuff and the filth and all that kind of stuff? When the police went in that day, they had a lot of people to remove by force. And um, they were being taunted and all that. And they invited the press to watch everything up close to show they were doing their job right. And uh, today, the Ellicott administration went out of its way to make sure nobody could see what they were doing when they got three people to leave. They lied to the press about knowing when they were going to go in. They went in just around dawn. And then when reporters showed up, they penned us away so that we couldn't see anything near, and they claimed it was for our own safety. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, I'm watching situations like this unfold across the country, frankly. And like, right, it, it's it's a conflation of a series of issues about housing scarcity, uh, housing costs, how to sort of rectify the public safety concerns that administrator that the administrations have in these communities and the fact that this is a it's a youth soccer field right like like at point there are hard choices to be made about like when you when do you put um administrative force or police force behind removal of people from a place that they're living so it's a hard choice the administration's got to make so i want to start there mm -hmm. i agree with you by the way yeah it's a really once, hard choice yeah but once you make that choice I think the way they handled it with Occupy New Haven, I actually disagreed with the timeline they had developed at that time. But you know, I, you have to invite the press in. You have to make sure that that everyone understands why you're making the choice you're making. That you're making it with humanity and humility, and that you're like recognizing the very real struggles that people who are on that set are dealing with. I think it would be it would have. It would have the optics of it would have been better if the press had been invited in and made aware of what was happening and made aware more fully of all the resources that were trying to be made available to the individuals that the counseling that they had available on site was sufficient. Like it just, it just. It, well, they it, told us that everybody left without incident. They didn't show us how they removed them, well, how they spoke to them. And there's a lieutenant in charge there named Justin Cole, who has a really horrible history of dealing with the public. That's the person they had in charge of the scene. And like, I don't trust that he did it right. Maybe he did. But yeah. I wouldn't want to see it for myself before I believe that he handled them sensitively. Yeah, no, I, there's a couple of people that I know who've been part of the protests, and I'll, I'm going to reach out to them and see if what their viewpoint of it was. I don't want to criticize it too much. Maybe they did do it right, but like not inviting the press in and not having a more public facing. And then penning us away. And, and yeah. that's the part I couldn't believe. Claim yeah. it was for our safety. 
that's like 1970s thinking. I thought we we're, I mean, even in Minneapolis, they don't do that anymore. Yeah. No, I look, give them some benefit of, of like thought. Like, like I, I presume that this was a well thought out, well executed program. They've had a lot of time to develop what their strategy was going to be. Hopefully it was uh, a robust plan that they had in place, but not having the press there and not having a more public facing aspect of it invites these questions. And then, what got me is that when we showed up, because the mayor says, we don't have to tell you, but they lied to us about not knowing when they're going in. But when they showed up, they kept them like all the way at the other block. So you couldn't watch. That's yeah. the part that got me even more. I don't know. But anyway, yeah. Roland Lamar, that's not why we had you on radio this morning, but thanks for <laughs> chatting about that. You're the chair of the transportation committee. Last year, you got a lot of work done trying to get advances for safe streets and electrified bus fleet. What are, what are the big uh, issues you're trying to get through your committee this session, and how's that going? Well, we've got quite a few things. We actually had our first uh, committee meeting where we passed through a series of bills um, last week. We're finishing up our work in the committee tomorrow, um, and we have a pretty robust agenda, and I'm I'm really proud of what the Transportation Committee has become at the General Assembly. It, it wasn't that long ago that the Transportation Committee was seen as a place to go if you wanted to, you know, build highways and expand roads and, you know, just, you know, build new bridges and a lot of infrastructure was invested in, uh, you know, multi-million to multi-billion dollar highway projects. And the focus that I've had in the last six years that I've been chair has tried to move away from that. And the people who join the Transportation Committee now uh, do so understanding that our framework for this conversation about transportation policy is around safe streets, uh, micromobility, uh, expanding alternative forms of transportation, being thoughtful about what transportation policy can do for communities. Uh, and this year's agenda followed suit. We, uh, the primary uh, bill that we passed last week was our implementation of Vision Zero recommendations. Uh, and Vision what does that, Zero. What does that mean, Vision Zero? So there's a, there's a growing interest around the country, particularly in urban communities, but now being embraced by states as a whole uh, to develop a vision zero policy um, in which we recognize that there are no deaths uh, on our roadways that mm. are not preventable. Uh, we can establish policies and, and uh, procedures and techniques to ensure that there aren't any roadways whether it's pedestrians, whether it's a car versus car, uh, removing the context of these things being accidents when in many cases it's a rate of speed or distraction or other contributing factors that led to all of these crashes and fatalities. And so uh, we became the first state in the country to pass a statewide Vision Zero Council. They met for the past year and a half under the leadership of then Deputy Commissioner Yucalito, and they forwarded a series of recommendations to the General Assembly this year that we took up. They include some controversial things, um, mandating the use of motorcycle helmets uh, for all motorcycle riders. Uh, why, why is that controversial? Oh, I guess because the libertarian argument is as long as you're not hurting somebody else, you could get you can get a you know get your brain destroyed and die if you want to in an accident. That is that is part of the argument. Yeah, so a freedom loving argument is uh, the the argument that I hear most frequently. Uh, ensuring that there's no more open containers in the cabin of the vehicle. Right now, we're one of a few states in the country that allow passengers and other riders to drink alcohol openly in the car. Uh, and we we have include weed, by the way. It doesn't include weed. We haven't had the conversation about marijuana yet. I know that's a that's a big issue. 
Uh, we, are, we are mandating additional driver's education materials and educational uh, uh, process in our driver's ed and licensing programs so that people understand the impact that uh, marijuana has, weed has on driving capacity. There are a number of people who still believe this sort of antiquated, I don't even know where it came from, thought that, well, I, I've heard people say it, like, I drive better when I'm stoned. Like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, I you don't drive speed as much. <laughs> uh, that's not right. Your, your reaction times are greatly inhibited. Your ability to understand the surroundings is, is inhibited. And like, we, like, we got to get that mindset out of people's mind. You don't drive better stoned. Uh, Connecticut is seeing a dramatic increase in the number of roadway fatalities, largely uh, driven by alcohol, but also by uh, growing number by by marijuana. So we have to get on top of this stuff. It also includes um, the use of speed and red light cameras in select zones. We use a data-driven approach to develop like where high crash incidents are, where pedestrian and, and roadway fatalities are increasing dramatically. We'd allow local municipalities to develop a program that's data-driven. Like you have to show, you have to prove to us that you're choosing locations based upon a, a history. Um, of accidents and crashes, and we'd use those funds to improve traffic safety. Like it can't be a cash cow for local communities. Mm -hmm. Those dollars be directly uh, spent on improving traffic safety in communities. Um, so that's all. It's it's a it's a big package of reforms, controversial, but we got it through. We we're discussing what the DOT's tree removal policy is and how to. Um, well, that's an interesting one because we we as you know on Dayton Street, New Haven. It's a one quarter block street that's just heavily congested because it connects two major thoroughfares, Whaley and um, Fountain. And that's a state road because of that. And night and day, tons of cars. It's hard to breathe, you know, from the pollution. And there are only five trees there. All but one are considered in good condition. DOT's insisting that the city take them all down be, um, if they want to put new sidewalks, which they have to do because the sidewalks aren't safe. Is that addressed in your bill? It's it not. Not that specific location, but we do make DOT go through a more robust process to determine if there are appropriate locations for replantings, uh, what to do in a circumstance where it's deemed that there's a safety hazard. Like, like you know, what I'm hearing more frequently from folks is um, like the clear cutting that you'll see in and along 91, 95, the Merritt Parkway, where they just take down hundreds and hundreds of trees and they don't have a replanting plan in place. They don't replace in kind and look in, you know, similar locations. The Department of Transportation in, is often dealing with a number of lawsuits from tree branches that fall on top of cars and either injure a passerby or, uh, you know, hurt a car or shut down a lane of travel for hours at a time. So they, they are, they think they're being responsive to safety concerns. But the net impact here is what you see you know, Dayton Street is a good example of it. It's like, I under, DOT is saying, look, you put up sidewalks under, under the current plan that you have. We know that those trees are going to die. Like, we know that that current plan that the city of New Haven has developed just means that those root systems are going to be damaged. Those trees are going to die in short order and limbs are going to start falling on cars. And we, DOT engineers, can't approve that plan. So city, come up with a better plan. Now, the net impact of that is the city can't come up with a better plan of dealing with a confined space. 
Um, if the DOT doesn't provide approval to narrow those roadways, it can't just expand the sidewalk further to protect the trees more. So DOT has got to give better advice and better, uh, like better outline what a rational policy can be that the city can adopt. There's also honest disagreement sometimes. So the city's worked really hard because of the political pressure from environmentals in town. to yeah. find ways that when it first looks like it's too dangerous to leave the tree there because there'll be harms to the roots to actually take more measures to protect those roots and find ways to maybe build around it or something. So there's an honest disagreement between the DOT and the city here. They went and looked at it. So it sounds like under your bill, the DOT could still say, we went back and looked at it. We just don't see the way things the way the New Haven does, which I guess is going to happen, right? Yeah, but we, they have to show, they have, <laughs> they have to went through a, a robust process to deter, make that determination. And if that determination is made, what, what is DOT's responsibility? Like, are there different replanting programs that they need to develop? Like, how do you replace what's lost in that environment? Like, and, like it, it shouldn't be the case that because we couldn't come up with a plan today, Dayton Street doesn't get to have street trees anymore. Or you're like, like there, there's got to be a, a net consequence when a tree is, is removed. Yeah. Um, right. So like, like we, we want to, so we're developing, working with Yukon Agricultural Station. We're trying to develop. Uh, an arborist-proof uh, program for replacement in kind. We're looking at, you know, the development of pollinator gardens along our uh, highways. Like, there's a series of initiatives we're trying to do to sort of rectify what we see as sometimes overly aggressive tree removal policies. Awesome. Uh, also, State yeah. Rep. Roland Lamar from New Haven is the House Chair of the Transportation Committee. He's been busy. He says that tomorrow, on Friday, you're going to – what does it mean to finish up your work? You mean all the committee hearings, the votes are done, and now stuff goes to the floor? That's right. We've uh, went through four public hearings on proposed bills. Uh, we had a series of oversight hearings in our committees with each of the relevant agencies under our jurisdiction. Uh, we got a series of recommendations from – uh, leadership caucuses, and now we have to complete our work. What is the final product that the transportation? And if that happens on Friday. Yep, we finish up tomorrow. All right, so, uh, Roland Lamar. Uh, a lot of talk around the streets. What I hear these days about how the free bus rides are ending. CT Transit right. during the pandemic made it free to ride the buses, a little soft to bus riders because they were, you know, keep getting rid of the gas tax for the drivers. And uh, April first, it's no longer be free to ride the bus. We've all gotten used to it. You know, we all love free stuff and not everything. Life is free. Um, have you been hearing any of that? Have you taken any stand on this? Should we keep some people saying like Eli Sabin and New the New Haven Alders had a, a resolution from the New Haven Alders saying we should keep bus rides free? So there are a couple of things. Yeah. I, I, what we've noticed in the last year and a half with the implementation of free buses, is that ridership started to uh, grew back more robustly than it did on our train lines, right? Like folks started to take the bus and the idea of it being free meant folks who like, didn't have a dollar 75 on them could jump on board and not have to worry about um, uh, like, I don't have exact change. I don't have the money. I don't have my pass with me. And so the ridership did start to increase. And we're looking at examples from across the country about free bus programs and what that means for ridership increases. There's some differences in the data. It looks like a lot of folks, like it wasn't driving people out of cars the way um, we originally thought maybe it would. So people aren't making the choice, like well, instead of driving today, I'll take the bus because it's free. It looks like what's happening is a lot of people who would otherwise walk or ride bikes or take that transportation now, instead of doing that, jump on the bus there's no question there are days when i was running late and I had one mile to go i hopped on the bus because 
yeah, I wasn't going to have to pay that dollar seventy five, or right. you know, it was kind of raining and I want to hop on the bike. You just described me, so I, I, I guess I believe you. Yeah. So it's it's not having the mode shift um, like uh, benefits that we originally thought it would, and when we we had a robust hearing process on bus transportation just a few years ago, part of the Move New Haven project, where we did a series of community meetings across the city. I think we did a couple dozen of them talking about bus system in, in New Haven and what we could do to improve it. And the feedback we got during that time wasn't about the cost of the bus. It wasn't about a, you know, being a dollar seventy-five is too expensive. It was route predictability, route frequency, and whether or not you could get on the bus safely, like during a snowstorm, or like was a shelter properly located, where it was with the destinations that they make sense in the twenty-first century. And so, to me, if we want to encourage mode shift, those are the issues we have to focus on they have made progress on that I have a few gripes I, I think it's i like the bus yeah no so so do i and and we've improved the buses like you know the articulated buses we're moving more towards electric buses um it'll be a safer cleaner ride for a variety of reasons moving forward i i struggle with that like what i'm saying how i'm describing that what does that mean my policy position is I can't afford to do both inside of the special transportation fund. And that's the amount, that's the money I have. I can't dramatically improve bus service in New Haven with the same dollars that I'm giving up by not collecting fare revenue. In so are you in favor of the fares returning? I am. Terrible thing for a politician because you got to run for office and you have to tell someone, I want you to pay for something. Yeah, no, I, I think given, given a, and I think this is this is why I'm going to have this position. Like the easiest thing for me to say is we got the tomatoes want, ready, by the way. <laughs> like, like I want the bus service to be free, but I want the general fund to pay for it. Right. That, that's the easy thing for me to say. Like the in the, the state general funds should pay the additional forty five million dollars a year it costs to keep buses free, knowing that it's going to get pushed back to me. And I'm going to have to find within my limited amount of dollars, which is the special transportation fund. I'm going to have to pay for it in that fund. I know it's going to come at the cost of expanded bus service in New Haven. The Move New Haven program is going to be negatively impacted. My ability to provide Shoreline East rail service is going to be negatively impacted. My ability to run a community connectivity grant program, to improve bus shelters, to improve sidewalk programs. So is your uh, position, can we, roll, can we boil it down this yeah. way? Will Lamar says, I think bus service should be free. And I'd like the state to pay for it. So I could be a Weasley politician and just say I'm coming out for free bus because I want the general fund to pay for it. But if I'm going to be intellectually honest, I'm going to say I have to make choices with the real budget it comes from because it would come back to me. And it's going to be more important for people to ride the bus and to have our larger goal of people out of cars to spend to make the tough choice on those dollars and have right. it instead go to upgrades. Is that a fair way? That's a fair way to say it. Yeah. Our speed cameras. Is that going to happen? I think so. I got it out of committee. Um, uh, I've spoken with the speaker of the house. He's committed to me to have of it on the floor. Uh, so I feel, I feel we're in a much better spot than we've been in, in years past. Mike Lawler, the former governor aide and state rep told me that we've been misrepresenting that issue. He says speed cameras are legal. The city can have speed cameras that all your bill would do would be to make sure that the money goes to the state. and There's no new municipal, um, court set up. So he says that all this debate could be stopped and we could just put speed cameras up. Is he right or is he missing something? 
uh, I have looked, he sent me some information. Um, my attorneys in my legislative commissioner's office, which is the attorneys for my committee, uh, the state house representatives and the department of transportation happened to disagree with him. Um, and uh, in years past, the corporation councils of the city of New Haven, city of Hartford have looked at it and have reached a different determination. And everyone's felt that we needed state authorizing language. So, so what is the specific terminology of your bill? What does it specifically do for speed cameras? So it would allow municipalities to develop automated enforcement devices, which is speed cameras, red light cameras, and designated zones, speed, uh, uh, pedestrian safety zones or school zones. Um, the local council or first electman, in our case, the Board of Alders in New Haven, would have to approve of the program. They'd have to, they'd have, to have a complete streets program in place. Like that New Haven has. That's right. And they'd have, to they'd have to show where they intended to spend the dollars that is raised by those cameras. Oh, so, so they that, could keep the money. Municipalities can keep the money. It, yeah, they could keep the money, but it has to go towards it has to go towards improving traffic safety in the in the community. And and does the can it be any place where people are speeding? Or can it be on um, Orchard Street where they've tried with the speed bumps? Can it be some of those deadlier intersections like coming on West Park? Yeah, they have to use a data driven approach to determine the locations, and then they have to make those locations pedestrian safety zones they have to put up signage they have to let people know speed cameras are in use they have to let people know um the process that they went through and and that to me is how we get around um what i've seen is poor implementation in other states where communities would uh, try to use cameras as a revenue raising device to solve you know general fund issues where they target mm -hmm low-income or minority communities for implementation of the devices um, and use it as a revenue-generating tool. Justin those Farmer wrote in a question. Thank you for listening, Justin. Harry Jaros thinks it's a slippery slope. Justin says, who holds and controls the data from the red light cameras and what happens when that data is misused? Aha, I, and I've addressed this. I've actually worked very closely with the ACLU on the data retention policies. It's a national model program that I've had. It, it doesn't allow the misuse of the data uh, it, do we actually force them to destroy the data after uh, the adjudication process is considered? And um, I, I think it, it, ACLU has signed off on the data provision, the data uh, uh, policy protection component of it. They don't like the other parts of it, but on the data uh, privacy concerns, uh, we've, we've got a best in nation model. Well, Jerome Lamar, it's always so much fun to have you on radio. You are so tapped into the pressing issues at the Capitol. You always explain it in a way that an idiot like me can understand. So thank you for coming on Dateline. I mean, I, I love Babs Love Talk this morning on WNHHFM. Talk to you soon. Thanks again. Good luck fighting the fight in Hartford. We're going to take a break now. We're going to get the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the Group CD, A Plea for Peace. We'll be back on, I think, with rerunning the Rosa DeLauro interview about Paycheck Fairness. And then we're going to be back live at 1030. With Anthony McDonald, the executive director of the Schubert Theater, about what's new and what's old that's new at the Schubert Theater. Stay tight. WNHH New Haven's home for community radio.
this is Bella, and you are listening. W N H H H L L P one one O O three point five five F F M New Haven New Haven streaming streaming live live Love Babs, Love Talk on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I am not Love Babs. I'm not Babs or all Ivy, the inimitable morning host. She's, God forbid, got a week off to spread her wings, go to a writing workshop, love nature. It's Paul Bass sitting in the chair trying to keep the news flowing. I got someone to help me this session. One of the people who really keeps things going in New Haven since the pandemic started and still going strong, Anthony McDonald, executive director of the Schubert Theater. Mr. McDonald, thanks so much for joining us this morning. On, Thank uh, you for having me. So we were gonna talk about what's new at the Schubert, which is All also, right. I would argue, what's old being made new. In looking that, that would be pretty accurate. Cause I'm, first of all, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, um, literally yesterday was my two year anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, so it's, time has flown by. It has, and you came right in the thick of the pandemic. And I remember one of the happiest first days after the vaccine was when many of us were lined up around the block to be able to come in to see, what was that guy's name? Um, some folky had a, a song. Uh, had, it was a double bill with someone oh, from the 90s and someone current. Uh, was it Patty Griffin and Gregory Allen? Is it called? Yep, 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 yep. And I remember we were just so excited to be out again. And you had it all set up, because this is right at the beginning when people were scared to come out. I'm talking about like early 2021. And oh, you yeah. had such incredible efficiency. So first of all, we were all standing in line outside. We can't remember this now because we all feel the pandemic's over. But you would just come to town. The business pandemic warning. How are we going to be in public together, all together? We had our masks and got vaccine. And you had us around the block. So all of a sudden, we felt like, oh, my God, we're out in public again. And we're in line for a show, which makes it exciting. And then I've never been through a line that moved that fast. You had each of us check that we had our vaccination. And, man, they should have you guys over at the TSA at the airport because we got right through and it was fun. And the concert was fun. And, and, and now you've been going full tilt ever since. Very much so. And I'm glad to hear that because, believe me, it's, uh, it was something new for us and different. And we were doing the best that we could with the situation that we were all in, experiencing something new and different and at times frustrating. Um, but no, but definitely glad that you had that experience and that you felt like, once again, that we were providing the kind of experience that you had hoped to receive after two or 18 months, basically, of time of not being able to go out and just be a part of a group of people that are experiencing something special for that one night only. And wow, so you came to New Haven, you got charged with bringing Schubert into a new era. I've been watching how you're making real efforts to have all sorts of parts of the community involved, and we're looking at the upcoming events. 
So how's that been? You sort of leading us out of the pandemic, be back in person to see culture as a community, and you're trying to reshape or evolve how that takes place. Tell me a little more about that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, like I said, drew me to New Haven was just how diverse it was. You know, coming from New York, obviously, it's like the melting pot of the world. Everybody is there. Um, and when I kind of started looking this deeper into New Haven and understanding the community that's here, it kind of seemed just like a smaller, a smaller version of New York to me, as far as there being so many different kinds of cultures and people, all that have come into this one community and are living amongst one another now. And so the Schubert being a place that has now been here for 108 years, um, providing quality entertainment to this particular community, all I wanted to then do is just continue to honor that fact that this community is beautiful and it's diverse and it's there's so many different cultures to explore and to experience. And in turn, what I've been trying to then do with my, my team and I is just bring that diversity to our stage because we do have the ability to pick and to curate what our season looks like. You know, the artists that we bring into this building to provide them to our community. And I think, you know, even what we have left for this particular season, uh, I think it kind of exemplifies the goal that we set in, set in front of us. Uh, and hopefully people feel like we really are achieving that goal. We're talking to Anthony McDonald, executive director of the Schubert Theater, about what is definitely part of his mission of diversifying what you see at the Schubert. You know, I'm looking at your background. I, I keep trying, I keep looking back at those seats and the grandness of the hall. You know, there's something about the Schubert. Yeah, it has that history in New Haven. And, and it's something when you go there, whether it's for a political debate, a musical, a concert, it feels more special because you're there. You kind of feel like you're out at the Grand Theater that has a history with lots of people and the big ceiling and the several levels and the stage. It just, I, I think it's a special place. So you have, when I look at the next three events you have, actually four, I'm looking, first of all, it's obviously diversity. You'll see in a minute of different kinds of ethnic backgrounds, but there's also a way, I think in some of these, and I'd like to hear more from you about that, the way we take cultural touchstones from different eras and we relate to them now how we present them now, how we understand them now. For instance, the first show you have up, right, is the Best of the Eagles on March 18th, right? So this is like this a Saturday. theatrical. Hmm? I was saying this Saturday. This Saturday night is Best of the Eagles. And tell me about that. Like, what, what kind of phenomenon is that when you have a big rock group? I mean, they're technically still around, but their heyday, right, was the 70s, 80s, 90s. When you have a group like that, what kind of show is this? How do they recreate the era of the Eagles? Well, you know, this is... Um what we call a tribute band in that sense, but these particular artists, you know, not every tribute band I would say is created equal. And so you could have multiple different bands out there that are performing this music. Um, however, we just felt like this particular group really kind of just exemplified the essence of the Eagles in such a way that I think the audience is really gonna have an amazing time experiencing it as if this was back in the day, we could say, and the actual artists were on that stage. And so, uh, you know, once again, this is a part of uh, our community. There's a, there's a whole plethora of folks who still love their classic rock, who love this, this uh, era of music. And like I said, this is a part of our community. So I wanna make sure that I'm honoring that, that part too. And I mean, at the end of the day, who doesn't love Hotel California? I mean, to be able to experience- Mine was Lion Eyes. I thought Lion Eyes was a great song. <laughs> you know, so it's like to be able to experience that in a, in a concert venue again versus just hearing, hearing on your radio. You know, I think it's really going to be an amazing time this Saturday night. And you use the word concert venue. So often you'll see a tribute band in a club. 
there is something different, right? Like you probably like if you see it at the Schubert. And then you had us pegged, by the way, Baby Boomer Classic Rocks. I mean, the Eagles weren't my favorite band, but that whole singer-songwriter California-style classic rock, it's so, its the loop that's in my head, the soundtrack of life that gets embedded. Oh, yes. And, and um, so what is different, Anthony, about having this performed at the Schubert as opposed to Toads? You know, that's a good question. I have yet to experience a concert at Toads to understand. Or a club. Or a club, yeah. You know, so, so I'll say this. You're getting, I don't want to, let me think how I can say this in a, in a nice way. You're getting an elevated experience when you come into the Schubert, you know, yeah, where wrong with that. It's, it's about a night out, an evening out, where you can bring your significant other, you can bring friends, and you're not necessarily going to feel you're not going to necessarily have drunken folks bumping into you because we're in seats, right? Also, we're, like, we're, you know, and those of us of this demographic, we do like to sit down. We do like know? to sit down and see and hear the music. And even back in the day, there was a difference, and I don't think it's a put-down of either. There was a difference between seeing an arena show, a concert hall show, which I would argue this is the, the kind of top of the line for a concert hall, and a club. There's something great about a club, getting a little sweaty, up at bodies against people, there's something electricity about that, and it's often not the bands like the Eagles, right? Exactly. And, and I think this, and it's all, I would argue, legitimate music, legitimate theater, by the way, too, and that this is obviously the ideal place to see this, whereas if I were seeing, you know, if they, if they were doing the, um, the Sex Pistols, I think I might want to see that at Cafe 9, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's honestly the thing. I wanted to obviously find a way that the, uh, put down anybody but there are different venues offer different kinds of for artists and or different kinds of music you know you're not going to catch the schubert necessarily doing uh you know a, a rap artist here because that style of music people are going to want to get up they're going to want to dance they're going to want to move around more versus being confined to a seat but right, we so, want to chill out with the eagles you want to be sitting you know, next to your neighbor and other as you say and just kind of chill out in the zone yeah Exactly. So, so that's, the, that's the difference here. I think, you know, this particular style of music is going to lend itself hopefully great to um, the folks that we have coming to see the show. And then next to that, you got up March 23rd to March 26th, the true story of Gloria and Amelia Estefan. So it's not just the music, although the music is obviously essential. There's no place better than the Schubert for kind of big hall music production. You know, you guys, there's nothing better, no place other than New Haven to actually see that at that level. But what, tell me more about that show. That's not a tribute band, correct? Not at all. This is straight from Broadway. Um, the Gloria Estefan musical about her life, you know, the meeting of her and her husband, but then also, as you mentioned already, the music it's, itself. And this is funny enough that, that this was music that I grew up listening to with my own parents, you know, being grew up in New Jersey. Uh, we had 106.7 Light FM and Gloria Estefan whether I realized it or not, was always playing because back in the 90s, she was one of the biggest pop stars that we had. And so this, this uh, musical slash story is exemplifying just her artistry, providing us with the soundtracks that we all know and really giving you just a, a fun experience at the theater. You know, I understand that sometimes life can get us down and the, the news of the day is not always the most positive. And this is a night slash a set of nights that hopefully folks will come in 
and be able to just release and forget the troubles of the world and get lost in the music and the story itself. And that's timeless. The, uh, and, you know, it's different from the Eagles, too, because the Eagles are a little bit like, you know, a bit of the druggy scene and kind of think about what sucks, right? And then and with Gloria Estefan, would you argue that the music, is that the role that you remember from New Jersey when you were growing up? Did it feel that way, the way you're talking about it now, where it kind of gives you a little bit of lift, a little step, a little it bit? It does. You know, positive. Positive, just upbeat, celebrating life, you know? Um you just, in many ways, you can't go wrong. I mean, once again, you hear conga at a, at a party, you want to get up and dance, or dare I say, you want to get on your feet and do the conga. You know, you want to experience that kind of this vibrancy of that music. And the, the fact is, this was also, once again, a part of an op opportunity for the Schubert to provide entertainment, especially on the Broadway side, that centers a Latino experience that centers, in this particular case, a Cuban experience of Gloria Estefan coming up in this country in Miami and being able to make it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so few shows that center uh, a Latin experience make its way to Broadway that allows a Schubert now to be able to present it to our community, community thereafter. And so when I saw the opportunity to bring this here, it was a no-brainer for me, and I, and I fought to make sure that I could bring it for our community. Because once again, like I said, we're all here. And so hopefully all of us, even if you're uh, Latin or not, can come and have an amazing time and, and remember just why, was, why she was so big in the 90s and the early 2000s, but then also understanding some of the tragedy and the struggle she also went through in her personal life. You know, for me, I was too young to know about the car accident. I was too young to know about some of these things because I just, you know, I was a kid, so I wasn't hearing that kind of news. So you kind of get, get reminded about not everything was always just so easy for her. And she really did have to overcome a lot of things in order to finally get back and be able to just do what she loved to doing. So it's a really when good I hear you describe show. this. I think about that sweet spot in the goal you described of having a more diverse set of offerings in a theater that's really for the whole community. Because on the one hand, you're bringing one community that isn't heard enough in this type of culture, right? Broadway style musicals. On the other hand, what makes it succeed as with any earlier entry into that market is the universality. So it's not a universality that waters down the culture. It celebrates the culture. It's that music. It's that story that you can specifically relate to. And it's also the story everybody can relate to. I yep. learned from what you talk about overcoming adversity or wanting to get up and dance. Anthony McDonald's executive director, Schubert. We're talking about upcoming shows as the old is being made new again. So then after that, again, Jesus Christ Superstar is having a 50th anniversary run, April 21st to 23rd. And again, now, now we're going back to the 70s, early 70s, kind of the end of the hippie era. And, you know, you know, it's been, I was thinking, when I think back, I was a kid then, I was thinking about Jesus Christ Superstar, it was, it was hippie culture gone to Broadway. And it's sort of reclaiming Jesus as like nowadays, I think of Jesus as sort of the original Bernie Sanders. But, you know, we can think of him lots of different ways. That's why I love, I, I'm Jewish and I love Jesus, not his son of God. But, you know, like, you know, I love what that's about. And that, that play was obviously capping during the hippie universal love vibe of it and, and treating each other well, really. I think when it comes down to it, and really memorable songs, like I don't know how to love them and all that. What are you seeing? Why are you bring it back on a 50 year? What does that mean now? We knew what it meant in 1970, what it meant in 1972. What does Jesus Christ Superstar say to us in 2023? You know, that's a great question because I think there are 
a few timeless musicals that exist that, I mean, once again, for anything from 50 years ago to still carry relevance all these decades later, it's a testament to just the artistry. And once again, the music, you know, for me, it was eighth grade when I did one of my first musicals, which actually was the opposite. It was Godspell. Well, uh, I think that was together. And Godspell exactly. was, it was more important one for me period. too. You know, and so I know that particular show a little bit more just because I did it. Uh, but once again, it's it's watching these shows and being able to then almost not say purposely, but you are actually learning about the Bible. You're learning about the man, but in a style that can be sometimes a little more palatable to those that don't care to go to church, don't care. But it's like then you infuse rock into it and you just kind of re jigger the entire expectancy of what you're got to experience and you hear the guitars and you're like wait this is about who jesus <laughs> like i didn't expect this and it so, is it's fitting you know it is very much so it's it's still about the bible it's still about telling a particular part of that story and enabling folks to connect with something that maybe wouldn't necessarily always be something that they're kind of looking for but in a different way it's it's kind of like the hamilton effect in a way that story told in a very plain, linear way of what one could have expected may not have become the big juggernaut that it is today. And this show in many ways probably did the same exact thing back in that day, to take a story and to infuse rock music into it, to give it a whole new feeling and look. When once again, you're expecting you know, liturgical music and that's okay too. I grew up Presbyterian, so we were not having drums. We had an organ in my church, so that's what you could expect. And then you come and experience this, and you're like, "Oh wait, this is this is different. This is kind of cool." What, what song actually. did you sing in in Godspell? Oh man, so I was part of the Tower of Babel. Uh, so the very first song, um, I was a chorus. I was like I said, I was eighth grade, so I was just happy to be around and to be able to sing "Prepare Ye the Way of the Lord" and all these classic songs that you know every once in a while I just bust out a song in my own house because why the heck not? I'm in theater. I, so that I'm was a soundtrack gospel for me. I saw it off Broadway as a little kid when it came out, and and in eighth grade, uh, "Day by Day" was the first song I learned on guitar that had a G major seven. Wow. And the way it built, and I just love the texture of that song and the AB yeah. format, the way it really built with the drums. You know, I agree with you that music really lifted it. You know, and that's the thing. So it's it's doing it's bringing that fifty years later, we can still be celebrating the music, the the musical itself. And you know, and honestly, ticket sales are doing quite well. So it seems like there is still uh, a world of people that want to experience this again. Because at the end of the day, this is the best-selling book of all time, right? And so, there's there's when you can experience the story on a stage, I think that will always find folks to come out and support it. So I, I was thinking uh, when I saw that you're playing Wilmore, Kentucky, so you had that spontaneous pray in at a college where people came from all over, kept the politicians out, young people really finding meaning and coming together across differences of politics and being inspired by religion and prayer in a, in a way that young people can relate to in a new way. And I kind of think you're bringing this play at the time when that event stretched out to two weeks and really captured the imaginations of the whole country. 
me, that was another reminder about why a play like this could really speak to us and what people are looking for, because I think people are yearning a society the way they were in the early 70s when society was being fractured by social divisions. We were looking for a unifying, universalist, passionate, and caring theme through the, the, the Jesus story. So yeah. I, think, I think it kind of works. And then after that, and this is a favorite one in New Haven, is Tito Puente. He's going to be playing at the Schubert stage at April 29th. We love him in New Haven. And Tito Puente Jr., Monaco, yeah. And, and, and more importantly, he also, the green. Yeah. oh, yes, and he's played in here. I mean, some of my own guys were saying, you know, they remember having uh, Tito Puente here and looking now really looking forward to welcoming his son into the building in addition to Rico Monaco, um, you know, who's played with, some legendary musicians as well, like Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony from Van Halen. Um, really? Oh, yeah. He and plays the with the Rockers. Is, he's played with some Rockers, but he's also a local guy. Okay. Rico Monaco, Monaco is from Shelton. Oh, okay. So this is probably one of his first times being able to kind of come back in many ways home and to be able to now provide the, that music uh, and artistry to his own community. And, and is it so, jazz the genre, Anthony? Uh, mambo rock. You know, so it's going to be music that's going to get you up and dancing, you know, and I know, like I was saying earlier, we're not maybe always that perfect space for that, but believe me, there's enough space for you to get up and move. And so I hope that folks just want to come out and have a good time and get to a chance to experience, like I said, this level of music or this kind of music right here at the Schubert Theater. Everybody has a good time. I've had a good time every time I've been at the Schubert and it sounds like you got some great events come up. We'll repeat this in the independent when we post this tomorrow with the embed. But we got some great shows coming up. You got the Eagle, Best of the Eagles, March 18th. That's this weekend. On Your Feet, the true story of Gloria Emilio Estefan, March 23rd to 6th. Jesus Christ, superstar, 50th anniversary, April 21st to 3rd. Rico Monaco Band with special guest Tito Puente Jr., April 29th. Just go to Schubert.com. Is that what it is? Schubert.com. All right, and you'll get it all. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. I'm so glad you're in New Haven and doing such a great job bringing Thank the you. Schubert Theater to a new era. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to keep this place coming along for another 25 years if I can. And then, and but not being for 25 years, but make sure I put it on the right path. Just because at the end of the day, this theater has provided so much beautiful memories and positive experiences that I just want to be a part of that journey for it. I have no doubt you're going to succeed. And then after those 25 years, we'll have the 75th anniversary tour of Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony McDonald, Executive Director of the Schubert Theater here on WNHHFM. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure this week to fill in for Babs Rawls-Ivy, the inimitable Babs Rawls-Ivy on Love Babs, Love Talk. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. We all know what it means to fly free. We just got to book our flight. Book your flight with us at WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. Music.